Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Podcast on Radio Free Nashville, 107.1 and 103.7 and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. What's happening around Europe, it's a con job taking place. The citizens of Europe are being frog-marched into deeper and deeper European defense integration against their will, as Mick said. The people have no appetite for this. But they're being told that that's the only show in town. That was Claire Daly, member of the European Parliament. And you will hear more from Ms. Daly and her wisdom with regard to the European efforts for neutrality in Ireland, especially, along with her colleague Mick Wallace, another member of the European Parliament from Ireland. As we also finish up our show from last week, in which we highlighted a discussion with. Dr. Glenn Deason. And then to finish up the show, we will uh, turn to an interview that Jeffrey Sachs did. Uh, But first, my name is Jim Walkermuth, and I'm here with fellow Vietnam veteran Harvey Bennett. We're members of Veterans for Peace. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a a culture of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Just go to veteransforpeace.org. This radio show and podcast is on stations across the country. Thanks to Pacifica Radio Network. We're also on SoundCloud, Anchor Podcast, Spotify, and your phone podcast app. Just search Veterans for Peace. The Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by you, the listener, because it is you that keeps Radio Free Nashville going. And as a result, this radio show is then picked up by the Pacifica Radio Network so that we are heard across the country. So if you think this is important, just go to RadioFreeNashville.org and click on Donate and keep Harvey and I on the air in every time zone of the U.S. And if you support the work of Veterans for Peace, go to our site which is veteransforpeace.org. As we promised last week, we're going to finish up listening to Dr. Glenn Deason from his interview with Pascal Lotez of Neutrality Studies. Then we will stay with Neutrality Studies, but shift to an interview uh, Pascal had with members of the European Parliament, Claire Daly and Mick Wallace. Then finally, we will hear from Jeffrey Sachs during an interview on the Jeffrey Sachs official YouTube channel. We have hammered this Russia and Ukraine, and, and appropriately so, and we're going to continue yeah. to hammer it today. Yeah. Um, because I personally think that we're reaching some sort of crescendo, and I don't know what it is, mm-hmm. but it just seems like with the cluster bombs, with the troop mm-hmm. all up, with the 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 latest explosion on the bridge, yeah, the Black Sea thing. Yes. And, oh, and the the uh, the grain deal collapsing. I think we're we're heading towards something or other. I actually read a a piece in the New York Times today. I couldn't believe it. Ukrainian soldiers demoralized and exhausted, and that they have all this mishmash of weaponry from all these different countries, and, you know, half of them won't work on whatever there is they have. And, and, and this is in time, the Times. Yeah. <laughs> and every time they, and they're doing like trench warfare in small units, you know, against yeah. Russia. Is it when, and when they take a position and the Russians retreat, they think, yay. And the next thing they know, they're getting barraged with artillery. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So, and they're trying to use these young, inexperienced yeah. soldiers because the older ones refuse to do it. You, you think? Yeah. So. But when the Times is saying that, say that lightly, they, you know, there's a there's an agenda. 
Exactly. I mean, and if the Times is actually saying that the Ukrainian troops have low morale, you know it's a lot worse than just low morale. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, I think Zelensky's position is a bit tenuous right now, just on the basis of the military. I mean, I've seen a bunch where that, you know, Zelensky doesn't really know what the hell they're doing. They don't tell him anything. They don't tell him. He just keeps wanting them to go out and get themselves killed. Last week, you found an interview on neutrality studies conducted by Pascal Lotez with Professor Glenn Deason. This was another one from an mm -hmm. academic looking at the Ukraine-Russian war from a holistic and historical point of view, meaning from 30,000 feet. Mm -hmm. We know that war is horrible on the ground, and I'm sure if we were on the ground just watching the fighting, we would be hard-pressed to pick a good guy if there was one. But we could easily pick the bad guys. Mm -hmm. so expanding out, we can see the external pressures from international forces, corporations, industries, alliances, and history. The interview with Dr. Glenn Deason had so much important information that we covered last week. Today, we want to finish up. We're going to start with his discussion of what a Russia-China partnership would look like and here it is well i don't think the the russians and the chinese want to call it an alliance because uh well alliance is uh, two countries cooperating against a third country uh, as military alliances usually do which means that the whole partnership is premised on an external adversary which is in this case the united states what they are arguing is that this more this is more than a partnership it's about constructing uh, a new international uh, economic architecture. That means uh, new centers of, uh, well, of, of tech hubs, uh, new transportation corridors, new banks, new payment systems. Uh, so they want, um, you know, a, a different world order, uh, a multipolar Westphalian world order on a global scale. In order to achieve their, both their uh, political and economic objectives, they are completely dependent on each other because the Chinese are the main economic driving force who can make this happen. But also the Chinese objectives can't really be achieved in you know Eurasia without the Russians, so they're, they're very deeply tied together. Now to understand why the R Russians look at in, in this way is because, as I mentioned, they they decided to leave to abandon this dream of Europe, because at the end of the Cold War you had you know Gorbachev's concept of a common European home. He wanted a, a united, inclusive Europe, and this is uh, what uh, later on uh, the independent Russia translated into. Uh, the greater European project in which they wanted to find a common Europe. They, they tried for many years, but, you know, after for first they tried to have the develop uh, Europe around the OSCE when we instead decided to expand NATO, we asked them to join NATO. Anyways, they had uh, many different proposals to create a new Europe. Even the, even the greatest proponents of this uh, greater Europe uh, conceded in 2014 that it was a utopia, a dream which has to be abandoned. Uh, because uh, this was the year when the West toppled the government in Ukraine. This is when they realized there won't be any gradual integration of Russia into Europe. No, they saw us as building up, building up Ukraine as an anti-Russian front line. You know, so this is when Greater Europe died, and this is when uh, Russia began to pursue what it calls Greater Eurasia, and this is uh, effectively integrating this entire continent uh, from Atlantic to the Pacific uh, under new. Uh, economic infrastructure. So, using this new SWIFT, uh, you know, alternatives to SWIFT 
uh, new investment banks using their own currencies. So across the board, the de-Americanizing, if you will. If, if, if you want to do this, you have to bring all the major powers on board. So Russia and China can't just do this without each other. So this is why I think they will, rem they will remain uh, strong partners. It doesn't mean that they don't have any bad history or distrust, but uh, I think that their partnership will only get closer. And part of it is also because the Chinese haven't indicated yet that they have any hegemonic ambitions, uh, because the, the Russians would not be comfortable with having excess, uh, replacing its excessive dependence on hostile West with an excessive dependence on hostile China. So what China, what Russia really needs to do is diversify its its international uh, its economic connectivity. That means Russia, China is much more powerful than Russia. So Russia can accept that China is, is leading, but they cannot accept that they're dominant. Now, the difference is dominance means you can dictate uh, over Russia, you can have political influence over them. So the way you overcome this is to diversify your economic connectivity, you know, like Macron wants to do. Mm -hmm. And this, you know, uh, setting up the Eurasian Economic Union. So having closer ties with Central Asia, it means having this north-south corridor with Iran, with India. And overall, make sure it doesn't become too dependent only on China. Mm. Now, this inter interesting thing with China is they're not opposing this. They're saying we can be the first among equals. We're not after hegemony. We're after uh, being, a, a, you know, the leading power in a balance of power or a balance of dependence. And they've, they've made the indication to the Russians, we're, we're content with this. And if you listen to the rhetoric they have now with this global civilizational initiative, they're not talking about universal norms, which China represents and will use to promote a system of sovereign inequality. No, they're talking about the diversity of civilizations mm -hmm. that, you know, no one should interfere in each other. We should learn more about each other, cooperate, but each civilization is distinctive and, and that's okay. And we have our own independent uh, development models. Now, all of yeah. this translates into idea that we're not, we don't claim to have universal values, which we will impose on you. We're, we're not the new you know, Holy Roman Empire, which will claim to represent all the peoples. So this is uh, something that relaxes the Russians. I think they're moving towards a comfortable partnership. And uh, so I wouldn't dismiss it. And this kind of also reflects a new uh, concept, which is emerging because uh, during the Cold War, we got stuck in the mentality of spheres of influence, where you have exclusive influence within certain regions in a multipolar system. Uh, the basic idea, actually from the piece of Asphalic, a key idea behind the balance of power was you need to have indivisible security. In other words, if you undermine the security of your opponent, you're going to end up undermining your own securities. So there's this push, I think, uh, or at least uh, there seems to be a move towards what they're referring to, at least on the Russian side, as a sphere of uh, uh, interest, which means, you know, once you're on the Russian border, you must, you know, the, the, the Russians don't have exclusive influence along their border, but when other countries are in those uh, are operating on or trading or dealing with countries on these borders, it has to take into account Russia as well, because yeah. this is his neighborhood. Doesn't mean he has exclusive influence, uh, but this is kind of makes sense. I mean, China can deal with uh, Mexico trade as much as it wants to a certain limit. If China wants to build military base in Mexico, it has to accept that this is you know on the American border. So you have to take their security into concern. I think this is the sphere of interest. So you recognize that if you're pushing on the border of another great power, you know, you have to take their interest into account as well. Otherwise, they will and react in a way which undermines your security. I mean, it's common sense. I was just remembering back that for just a couple of years, Russia was part of the so-called G8. Remember that? Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. And listening to him to talk, I just felt so bad that we had such an opportunity because Russia wanted to become part of the fold. 
Yeah, sure. And Gorbachev wanted to become part of the fold. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, we had to create an enemy. We made sure Yeltsin got in to help Yeah, I guess I just felt bad that we just couldn't let it happen. You know, he talks about common sense and there's so little of it. And in, in the last clip, the idea that the United States just is still hung up on might makes right. Even down south in Brazil, they accommodated, uh, was it an Iranian warship who was allowed <clears> to dock <throat> there? And the American political establishment lost their collective mind. Like, how dare they? And that's a, you know, we're far away from the United States, but this was considered to be unacceptable. China builds to have security cooperation with Solomon Islands, also completely unacceptable. Other side of the planet, but, you know, so, so there is this uh, idea that, you know, you have to uh, respect America when you're close to them. But this is the principle. This is why I'm saying sovereign inequality is one set of rules for us and a different yeah. for you because we decoupled legality from legitimacy. Now we're saying, oh, it can be legitimate without being legal. Then you have to ask the question, what makes something legitimate if it's not legal? Well, that's if, you know, you might violate international law. So who's allowed to represent these liberal democratic values? Well, that's the United States and its partners. So now you've accepted that the West has an clause of exception in international law. We can ignore international law if we can justify it by liberal yeah. democratic values. And this is the rules-based international order. They reject it. The Chinese, Russians, most of the world, they don't want it. And the problem is you introduce competing concept yeah. and it's always power interest which, which dictates it. So for example, you can refer to international law when you say, let's say a country wants to sever from another one. Uh, international law says, you know, the principle of uh, territorial integrity is sacred. That's international law. But then you have this uh, humanitarian values, the liberal values saying, well, what about self-determination? So by introducing the rules-based international order, you have two competing concepts. Yeah. You have territorial integrity or self-determination. Yeah. So, but it's not values which dictates, it's power interests. So if you go to Kosovo, well, we want independence. So we'll go with self-determination. What about Taiwan? Uh, let's push for self-determination there as well. What about Crimea? Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter if 90% wanted to join Russia. It's, it's definitely uh, territorial integrity. So th th there's no principle anymore. It's just, we call it rules-based international order, but it just really reflects, you know, uh, might is right because... Uh, it's the rule of the hegemon. Yeah. We really must repeat, rules-based international order is not is not a concept of international law. It doesn't exist under international law. International law doesn't care whether a state is, is uh, dictatorial or democratic. International law is built on a very pragmatic uh, um, uh, fundament of equality of states uh, and not, uh, not, not ideology of them. So there it is. We've been listening to an interview that Harvey found in this YouTube channel, Neutrality Studies. Yes. And this was conducted by Pascal Lotez. That's P-A-S-C-A-L-L-O-T-T-A-Z. And it was with Professor Glenn Deason. Right. And talk about looking holistically, look, looking at the world from 30,000 feet. You can get a better grasp on what a, a move here will do to something else over there because everything has everything is in a response to something else right you go to youtube and search neutrality studies you'll find a lot of good material in there they also have one by with Yanis varifakis uh, former greek finance minister and 
he really explains how neutrality is a desirable goal. The other one who's very uh, eloquent on that is Claire Daly, the Irish uh, member of the European Union Parliament. She's going to be a keynote speaker at the coming up Veterans for Peace convention. That's which, right. Which is just awesome. And of course, then we found a clip that we're going to share in, in a minute. Yeah, she's going to be at the convention at the end of August. Yes, and along with Jeffrey Sachs. <laughs> if you want to join the convention, think anybody, it's open to anybody pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Um, just go to veteransforpeace.org. It is going to cost something. You know, it's going to be well worth it, especially to hear Claire Daly and uh, Jeffrey Sachs. So you found the Claire Daly clip and, and it was on neutrality again, on neutrality mm -hmm. studies. With that, Harvey... We've got this stuff from Claire Daly. In this interview, she's there with her fellow member of the European Parliament from Ireland, Mick Wallace. Yeah, one of the things that we was fascinating to me that we played last week was the question of I, I've had. Why is Europe so stupid to go along with <laughs> what the United States is saying? They don't specifically answer that question, but you will get the understanding of why Europe is so stupid. And it's not the European people necessarily. <laughs> Spoiler alert. So here it is. Claire and Mick. Hello, everybody. And welcome to a very special issue. Oh, we're starting the with the Daily, introduction just to give Pascal Lopez and neutrality studies a, a good, a good and endorsement. Hypocrisy in the West. Last week, I had the special privilege of talking to both of them directly. We started off with the question what their recent neutrality event was all about that they held on June 24th in Dublin. Yeah, well, I suppose the first thing to say is the reason for the meeting, and it was one of a number in cities all over Ireland, was to coincide with the decision of our foreign minister to launch what he called consultation forums about the future of their neutrality. Now, they weren't in any way to consult at all. They were set up in a manner in which these so-called experts would sit up at the top panel chatting amongst themselves about these incredibly important issues that the ordinary people could have no concept of understanding, of course. And we were supposed to basically come out of that with a preordained outcome, like the speakers were stacked with uh, US and military think tanks, people who would be very much uh, in favor of EU militarism and with practically no voice for anybody who supports neutrality at all. So the whole event was framed in the sort of background that we're in a changing world. We had neutrality before, it's very selfish. It's an old luxury, we can't afford it anymore. Whereas that is just absolute nonsense as far as we're concerned. Actually, it's the opposite. There is a need now more than ever for countries to be neutral and unaligned and actually against the backdrop of the war in Ukraine we see now that the majority of the world's countries which contain the majority of the world's populations are very much in that camp and we felt that Ireland could be uniquely uh, I suppose poised as a Western European country very pro-American in its dealings very linked in with American culture but actually haven't been colonized and having that sympathy and understanding with the countries who are in the long-aligned movement. So that was the sort of framing of our event to defend 
Irish neutrality as not something that's insular or background, but actually something that is the hallmark of the most um, radical and best tradition of international solidarity, really. Claire was highlighting uh, the nature of the, of the panellists that were chosen for the forums in Cork, Galway and Dublin. And there were very much, there were really no people in the, of an independent nature asked to speak. We uh, applied to speak, but we weren't allowed. It was so obvious, not only were the panel incredibly uh, biased towards uh, a more militaristic Europe, and supporting the whole agenda of U.S. empire. Uh, but on top of that, you had the crowd was also laced with people of the same ilk, but they were predominantly uh, of a, uh, from the civil service sector. They actually worked for the government, and most of them behaved as cheerleaders on the day. I went to the event in Cork and Galway. Claire went to the Dublin one as well. She went to all three. We, we both got to speak for a couple of minutes in Cork, we weren't allowed to speak in Galway, and Claire wasn't allowed to speak in Dublin either. The point we're trying to make is that this was very much a staged event, and um, we we spoke at events uh, outside uh, on the streets in Cork. We spoke on the streets in Galway, and we had our own event in Dublin. And it's very obvious that the people are in a very much a different space to the politicians. We have the political class and the corporate media promoting this militarization of Europe, promoting the war in Ukraine, uh, promoting anything that the Americans get up to. Uh, but it's not what the people want. I don't know whether you've seen it uh, before, but Claire and myself put in an amendment twice in the last six months on the Ukraine war in Strasbourg here. And each time we call on the EU to maximize its uh, potential to bring about dialogue and diplomacy with a view to ending the war and establishing peace. And 80% of the politicians are voting against it, so they're actually wanting war. But we know from uh, different polls that have been taken around Europe, over 80% of the people of Europe want peace. A poll in Ireland showed that 87% of the people of Ireland actually wanted peace. But if, you're, if you turn on your television set or open your newspapers in Ireland, uh, you would swear that the whole country uh, was loving the war and that we think that the thought was a great idea. Corporate media and the political class have been pushing the militarization of Europe. They've been pushing this war in Ukraine. They've been pushing NATO. It's not what the people want. Uh, the people are on a different page. The political class and the media do not represent the public of Europe. So what grabbed you in that first clip? Well... And it Mitch. just reminds me of uh, the way things are here in the good old USA. Yeah. You know, the, the voices of those who want a ceasefire, who want negotiations, who want peace, are completely ignored or suppressed or demonized. The politicians there or the media or some people are saying, well, neutrality is selfish. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going, good Lord, that really would have more power than just going along with the rest of Europe. Mm -hmm. And so, and I think in the next clip, they actually make that. Well, the neutrality allows you to assess each situation on its merits. You're not under some kind of binding relationship with the U.S. or NATO where you have to just go along. Exactly. 
So here's their here's their next clip. The president intervened around the time and warned about the slippery slope towards NATO uh, and how dangerous that was. And that had a sort of an electrifying effect on all of the population who got up to defend their neutrality. Now you said, well, what does that mean? Well, we have a peculiar situation whereby while we're neutral, it's not in our constitution. We do have in our constitution the responsibility to resolve conflict by peaceable means, but it's not actually in our constitution. It's more the tradition that the, the country has always had, mainly because we were colonized by Britain. And uh, that's the, the main reason behind it. But um, unfortunately, things like the triple lock, which is the basis upon which we send our troops abroad. Now, this is something that in Ireland can only happen if the government, the parliament, uh, and it's a UN mission. So the three things have to be in place before Irish troops can go abroad. But that's only a piece of legislation. So that can be changed by the people in the parliament. And the two, three parties in government at the moment have all said they're prepared to look at that. So what we have is pretty much like what's happening around Europe. It's a con job taking place. The citizens of Europe are being frog marched into deeper and deeper European defense integration against their will, as Mick said, the people have no appetite for this, but they're being told that that's the only show in town. And the establishment in Ireland is going along with that, not because they have to, but because they want to be the best little Europeans in class. There's also a rumor that some of our leadership want a nice job in Europe at the end of it. The Irish people don't want that. So what they're doing is being the victims of a sleight of hand. So we've, the government, I've no doubt, are going to come out of this process and say, of course we're neutral. We're not going to change our neutrality. Uh, and of course we're not going to join NATO. But we do need to do a lot more in terms of cooperating with our European like-minded partners to defend ourselves against cyber security, to protect our cables, this type of nonsense. And we saw announced yesterday that the Irish government is going to get involved in four military exercises, so-called protecting private cables uh, off our shores now. So they don't need to go to the people, but if they were to nominally kill neutrality, there would be nearly a revolution to defend it. But you have this kind of double standard because even with us being neutral, they still allow the US military use our civilian airports to go through Shannon. And that's something that we've said is an abomination and shouldn't happen. So actually the background to this has kind of energized people into saying, do you know what? This sort of schlieving neutrality, a nod and a wink neutrality isn't good enough. We want real active neutrality. And that has energized people more to defend that now. Yeah, uh, it, it's very easy to make the case that Ireland is a small country. Um, at present, we spend 0.2% of our GDP on defense. Uh, but we have serious challenges with our house, with our housing. We have a housing crisis that's for over 10 years. We have serious challenges uh, with our health service. We have abysmal public transport. We're under huge pressure to meet our environmental targets. And there's a lot of investment uh, needed to take place. And now we have these guys looking to spend more on defense in order to get on page with that militaristic element across Europe. Uh, this idea that, as Claire said at the start there, uh, or that neutrality is a luxury we can't afford anymore. When in actual fact, the opposite is true. 
we can't possibly afford to go down the other path. And Ireland, being a small country, we have great potential to play a real positive role as a neutral country. We have so few countries clamoring for peace in Ukraine today. Instead, countries are afraid to even call for peace. And a small country like Ireland can make a difference at this stage. We cannot make a difference militarily. We're not going to build a serious army. Uh, it isn't possible. So we're wasting our time trying to play the military games. There, a, apart from the fact that there are a lot of nonsense anyway, they're just a matter, uh, it's a way of funneling money into the military industrial complex. But it makes no sense for Ireland to go down the military path. It makes an awful lot of sense for Ireland to be a peaceful nation, a neutral nation, promote, trying to promote peace and harmony uh, in the world at every opportunity. So there is no common sense whatever to Ireland actually adopting a military position. No common sense for Ireland, a small country adopting yeah. a military position. But it was Shannon Airport, right, where yeah. Tarkov and Ken Mayers, members yeah, of man. Veterans for Peace, were right. yeah, ar arrested, arrested. Yeah, and jailed. And, and yeah, passports for, were taken. Yeah. They were what, six months or more. Uh, and that was just for trespassing. I think they wanted to just check some of the unmarked planes to see what they were carrying. And of course, yeah. Shannon Airport was noted for having all kinds of U.S. Mm -hmm. military. That was a regular fueling and stop for the troops going to Afghanistan or even going to Iraq. Mm -hmm. That's not real neutrality. No, that's not neutrality. We're really getting the point that the people of Ireland are not for this. No. And to go back to Ken and um, Tarek, when they were sentenced, they were asked to give a fine that the judge and the court didn't think they'd be able to pay. Uh -huh. And and they went out and they gathered all the funds from the local people within yeah. about a couple of hours, yeah. paid the court and yeah. were gone. Yeah. Well, back to Pascal Lotez and his interview with Claire Daly and Mick Wallace. Mick and Claire, I think you're not getting it. I mean, uh, peace for Ukraine means more weapons, right? Uh, as Stoltenberg said. And here's Pascal. Uh, <laughs> it, he's doing a little tongue-in-cheek thing here. Right. And, uh, weapons are the way to peace. And what we need is more meat, right? We need as much as, uh, meat as possible because the Ukrainian meat is actually running out. And we can see how this push toward, okay, more people need to get engaged. So just throw as, mu as many troops at it as possible. So you're saying Ireland should not participate in the meat grinder? It's amazing. Of course we are. And we think not only do Irish people agree with that, but a majority of people across Europe believe it as well although many of them have been bullied into staying quiet about that. I mean, we've just come from a session, a voting session in the European Parliament where the Parliament voted to uh, again send ammunition uh, to Ukraine, emergency suspension of means to get all of those uh, bullets across. Um, I think 25 people voted against it. 25, 25. out uh, of 705 MEPs voted why? against that. Just there a few. Because they are disconnected from reality, because they are in hock to the military industrial complex that is battening down the doors here all the time with this nonsense that somehow <laughs> militarism uh, makes people safer. When the reality is that we have the biggest war on the continent. It, you know, you got to love Claire because she does not pull any punches. <laughs> <laughs> Europe since World War II against the backdrop precisely 
of a growing militarism in Europe. So it's not true to say the more militarism you have, the safer we'll be. The more militarism you have, the more unsafe we will be. And that's what's happened with Ukraine as well. It, it is, as you say, the Ukrainian men are into the meat grinder and that's all they care about. Yeah. Um, but it should also be said, a, a big factor at play is the role of mainstream media. And I, I don't think that all the MEPs have been got to by the, by the lobbyists for the military industrial complex. Obviously, some of the, the main players in the groups uh, may have been, but the, main, the corporate media is playing a very negative role and it has been promoting the war from the start and it has been demonizing anyone that has the audacity to look for peace. We have made clear from the very start, we condemn the invasion. It's illegal to invade another country. It's a breach of the UN Charter. We condemn the Russian invasion from the start. We, are, we understand that it was provoked, and that's why it's called the unprovoked war, as it was provoked. But that doesn't mean that it was still illegal for Russia to invade Ukraine. And we have condemned that invasion. But we have refused to take sides in the war. We want peace and we have appealed morning, noon and night for negotiations and diplomacy to start. Not one effort has been made by the European Union in 16 months to commence dialogue and diplomacy. Not one effort. And anyone that dares, like we have, anyone that dares to call for peace is written off as a Putin puppet. If we don't, we're not taking sides, but because we're not taking the side of uh, the US-NATO proxy war, this is a way of the corporate media, and we've been lambasted in the media in Ireland. Absolutely lambasted. So you can understand why MEPs wouldn't quite like to get into the space that we're in. They don't want to be demonized. They don't want, there's an election coming in less than a year, right, in Europe. We've, we've elections next June. And they don't want the mainstream media uh, criticizing them for doing something like calling for peace. So uh, people, they're intimidated by the media and they won't say things that the media uh, won't like. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why they're voting so badly uh, in the parliament. US money is funding media in Europe. You have US-based think tanks, which are the go-to people for all policy decisions inside the European Union. Now we have said repeatedly, these people are entitled to their opinion, it's their view, they're entitled to it, but please don't pretend that it is an independent view. It isn't, it's a view supporting NATO or US empire or whatever. I think the narrative is shifting a little bit, not nearly enough, but a little bit. There are some stories about maybe the Ukraines not being the angels that they're painted out to be. And that's the beginning now of a softening of an attitude of whereby there is going to be need to have some sort of talks. We've seen the stories about the, the US administration talking behind the scenes with the Russians. I've no doubt that's going on. Uh, obviously, we had Zelensky's performance at, at NATO, whinging that Ukraine weren't being admitted tomorrow into NATO. Ukraine are never going to be admitted into NATO. Let's be clear about it. They are being used. So I think there is a pressure to slightly shift the narrative. And we do see some members of parliament beginning to shift. But it's very clear that the, those who are promoting the proxy war don't want it to end just yet. While there's enough meat to go into the grinder for a bit longer. I mean, you may have seen the article in the Financial Times last week, which we had the Ukrainian defense minister bragging that
that this was the best training ground of your life for experimenting with military hardware, that this was the first time that NATO weaponry was being allowed to be tested against the Russian administration and that it was the best training ground they could possibly have. Where would you get such experience? It was heartbreaking to, to think That's that, sick. but they were actually brazen about it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, listen, you asked about the independent media, right? I mean, in media, is, it, there's very little independent media anywhere, and it isn't just a problem in Europe. I mean, the media wouldn't be really, wouldn't be independent in Russia, it wouldn't be independent in China, it's not independent in America, and it's not independent in Europe, right? I mean, you have to look at who owns the media, who controls it. They have a vested interest in shaping the news rather than telling it exactly as it is. So, uh, you know, the very fact that mainstream media across Europe have been so reluctant to stand up for Julian Assange tells you a lot. As a journalist, he exposed the truth about US and NATO war crimes, right? And he's locked up. So anyone that dares to challenge the narrative is liable to be locked up and that might be let out again. Mm -hmm. So it's a real uh, lesson for journalists that you need to behave yourself. And the fact that other media will not even defend Assange and stand up for him, this is an incredibly important case for journalism and they are silent about it. That was the interview that was sponsored by Neutrality Studies with Pascal Lotez. And Harvey, what uh, really stuck out to me was how much they confirmed what Dr. Glenn Deason was saying in, in our show last week. They all, without listening to Glenn Deason, they all brought up about conforming with the narrative about U.S. bullying, about think tanks. The number of times Claire brought up about think tanks, uh, the media either culpability or manipulation. Mick brought out, it's a provoked war. Yes, we can condemn Putin and Russia for uh, attacking, but let's admit that it was provoked. To answer the question, are the Europeans stupid? Well, Apparently, after listening to Claire and Mick, it's only a portion of Europeans that are stupid. And they mm. all just happen to be in the government or the media. Or in industries that are making money off it. Are you ready to move on to Jeffrey Sachs? Yeah, that's Professor Sachs. Professor yeah. Sachs. He turns his attention to the U.S., its policies, its policy people. And he doesn't call them out specifically by name. But you probably could tell that they're all in the White House, maybe a couple in the State Department and, and the Pentagon, but definitely not the worker bees. These, are, these no. are policy people. So here is Jeffrey Sachs from his own channel. It has been the driver of U.S. foreign policy since 1992, the idea that there's a unipolar world and now the U.S. is going to run everything with the demise of the Soviet Union. And so... I think that this was really planned step by step, and it's all gone uh, absolutely disastrously because these people are not very clever, by the way. They, they really are not very clever. Not very uh, they clever. They have no sense uh, of proportion and what they're doing. And of course, they denigrated Russia's capacity to respond to anything that the United States put up. So they got everything wrong relentlessly, but they have created exactly the formula to destroy Ukraine. 
Uh, this is the formula that says there's no path to peace because we will do, the West will do exactly what Russia will fight to the end for because it's an existential uh, position for Russia. And that is not having NATO on its 2000 kilometer border uh, by being positioned in Ukraine. So this has been such a shit show. I don't know if we're allowed to say that on the air, yeah, yeah. but uh, it's unbelievable trying to understand why is, uh, I, I think it was basically a consistent underestimation of what Russia would do at every stage. So this was kind of the neocons by their own bluster and blather and arrogance and ignorance, thinking that they could do whatever they wanted without any opposition. And, and President Putin called their bluff. And now they went to Vilnius without an idea in their heads about how to end this war. But what's stunning, what we're going to see, actually, it, it, since it's this is not going to be settled at the negotiating table in the coming weeks or months, this is obvious. The, the simple truth seems to be the one that Jake Sullivan and, and, and uh, Biden said a few weeks ago, and that's uh, the U.S. has run out of uh, ammunition, ammunition to give to Ukraine. And if that's the case, which is what the U.S. has said, well, it's, it's just going to have an absolutely disastrous outcome for Ukraine. But Vilnius was without a single constructive idea, without any impulse whatsoever to actually help save Ukraine. They don't care. And I think another part of this, obviously, is that from the U.S. security establishment calculation, what does it matter how many more thousands or tens of thousands of people die? That's never been their calculation as long as it's not U.S. body bags. And uh, th this is uh, part of the profound cynicism of all of this. Not an idea, not a constructive approach, not a word about peace or negotiation or discussion, nothing except a formula guaranteed to be more disaster. That in 1992, it seems that there were private discussions within the Bush administration about how to expand NATO eastwards. This is at the very time that, well, shortly after the time when the Russians were told that wasn't going to happen. It's also the time when people like yourself were preparing to go to Russia to work, to find ways of changing Russia in some ways, yeah. integrating it with the West, building up the relationship between Russia and the West. And you've spoken on our programs about how you would telephone people in the White House and in the administrations, the various administrations saying, can I get help to do this in Russia, which has worked in Poland and it wasn't happening. Do you think there's a linkage with this? Oh, it, it, no, it's it's the same story. It's not a linkage. Mm -hmm. it, it is exactly the same story. I didn't understand it at the time. I actually you know, got engaged heavily with Russia in 1990 uh, with Soviet Union when Grigory Oblinsky was the economic advisor to Gorbachev. And he asked me for for help and some suggestions, because what I had suggested for Poland, debt cancellation, emergency stabilization, funding, uh, 
I invented something called the Zwolki Stabilization Fund, the Currency Stabilization Fund. And just to give you an idea of what geopolitics was like, was helping uh, Poland in its uh, new government, the Mazowiecki government. And I had the idea literally one morning, it was the IMF meetings in September 1989. And I said, you know, Poland needs a stabilization fund for its currency now that it's going to be making market reforms. Uh, and so I typed up a page of what a stabilization fund is from economic history. And I called Senator Robert Dole, uh, who was the Senate Majority Leader. Uh, first, I called the Polish finance minister who was in Washington in his first days ever as finance minister. And he was at the IMF meetings in Washington. And uh, I said, Leszek, uh, could, I, could I try to get you a billion dollars today? And he said, well, yeah, of course, if you can do that, fine. So I called up the Senate Majority Leader, Senator Dole, and I said, could I come in, Senator? He knew that I was advising Poland, so he brought me in. And, and I explained to him, this is what Poland really needs to avoid a hyperinflation. And uh, he said, could you come back in an hour? And so I came back in an hour, and who was there? the uh, National Security Advisor uh, sitting in Senator Dole's office, uh, General Scowcroft. Uh, and Senator Dole said, uh, Mr. Sachs, could you explain to General Scowcroft your idea? So I handed him the page. I explained what currency stabilization is. And General Scowcroft said, well, we'll take a look at it. Uh, and Senator Dole said, call me at the end of the day. So. Uh, at the end of the day, 5 p.m., I called Senator's office and he said, uh, Jeff, tell your friends uh, that they've got their billion dollars. Mm. So that was one day, one, it was, that was eight hours. I thought, yeah, pretty damn good economist, you know, uh, that's really persuasive. I thought, this is pretty good. This is how you're supposed to do stabilization, full and stabilized, had a stable currency. Now, the, the Soviet Union, I mean, I should say Yavlinsky was watching this. So he, he called, said, could I meet you in, in Warsaw? And we met, got to know each other a little bit. And I said, I'd be happy to help Gorbachev, whom I admired tremendously, by the way. I, Gorbachev was a man of peace and a man of incredible decency. And he wanted a common European home. And I loved the idea and I got stuck with that idea, I have to say, for the next uh, 33 years, because that's what we really need, not the barriers. So I said I would try to help uh, President Gorbachev help the Soviet Union avoid a financial collapse. Okay, zero. The White House said, you know, basically uh, ridiculous. We're not going to help the Soviet Union, whether it's Gorbachev or not. Gorbachev fell, Gaidar, who was his, Yeltsin's economic advisor, called me in the fall, said, please come to the dacha outside of Moscow. We urgently need to talk about the financial situation. So I came in September 89, uh, this is now September 91, and uh, met with uh, Gaidar. Uh, and uh, interestingly, just as an example, uh, the G7, finance deputies uh, were coming to Moscow in November. And I know a lot about that. So I said to Yegor Gaidar, who's a wonderful person, 
Tell them you need a standstill on debt payments. You're, you're running out of reserves. Before everything explodes, you need a standstill. So I was with him in the room as the G7 deputies came in. Then he went into the room and I stayed on the outside. The meeting broke and he came out ashen-faced and said, Yegor, what happened? He said, they told me if we don't pay every dollar on time, we stop all aid immediately, the food shipments on the high seas, you pay every penny that's due. And Russia ran out of foreign exchange reserves in the first days of 1992. Now, if you have experience in finance, that means that's how hyperinflation starts. I went back to the White House and said, are you kidding? I went to the IMF. Look what Poland did. Nothing. I went to the Secretary of State who said to me, Mr. Sachs, even if I agree with you, I just want to tell you it's not going to happen. You're not going to get the aid. I was, of course, nonplussed. Russia was not exactly the enemy at that moment. Russia was at the end of the Soviet Union. Yeltsin said, we're done with this Soviet period. We want to be normal. And what happens in Washington? Absolute, complete unwillingness to do anything. But interestingly, unwillingness to do anything of the kind that they had just done for Poland. It was very confusing to me. But what I was observing and did not understand at the time was the Cheney, Wolfowitz, Rumsfeld, neocon ascendancy, which was starting. And of course, I didn't realize it was going to become the Biden, Newland, everyone ascendancy. But I was watching something that was completely devoid of economics, completely devoid of just even a scintilla of empathy or understanding that you don't leave a major nuclear power in profound financial crisis, as was happening in 1992. And I was a student of John Maynard Keynes, and especially of what I regard as one of the most important books of the 20th century, The Economics of the Peace, which Keynes wrote in a disgusted mood in 1919 after the Versailles Treaty saying, are you all crazy? You're, you're creating the conditions for the next world war, for the next horror of Europe by having this kind of punitive settlement. And I was trying to tell them as an expert, don't do this. This was years before President Putin came on the scene, obviously. Mm -hmm. And I was advisor to the Ukraine government the same way at the same time. They didn't want to help. This was now the U.S. unipolar world. Mm. And it was a little hard for me to understand because I was entranced with the idea of a world of peace, you know, rather naive. Mm. Why not? Uh, Gorbachev had said, from Rotterdam to Vladivostok, this is a common economic home. This is a world of peace. I thought it was a pretty nice idea. And by the way, it was truly completely within reach and we just didn't want it for a moment and they refused to do any of that in the case of first 
Gorbachev's Soviet Union in the last days of perestroika, and then in Yeltsin's new Russia, where Yeltsin said, and I sat across from him, we just want to be normal. We want to be a normal country in a normal time. Please help. I said, Mr. President, no problem. This is the most important development of the 20th century in geopolitics. This is obvious. And it, it not only was it not obvious, it, it was completely resisted by the US. Really encourage people to read uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski's piece in Foreign Affairs in 1997, uh, called a, I think it's called A Strategy for Eurasia. And he spells out almost precisely the timeline for NATO enlargement, including to Ukraine. This is 1997. Putin's not on the scene. This has nothing to do with Putin. This is no reaction to Putin. This is years, and this is a decade, more than a decade, before the Bucharest NATO summit where the offer is made. And Brzezinski spells out exactly the timeline because these are deep plans. And another thing that people should look at is Wesley Clark, who was the NATO commander, commanding general, because he went into the Pentagon on two occasions and came out completely shaken by the neocons who explained to them, explained to Clark, all the wars that the US was gonna have to take out all of the governments that had been Soviet or Russian allies, Syria and Iraq and all the rest. This was a plan, long standing. You don't have to be crazy, just listen to what these people tell us. The problem is everything else is confidential, hidden, and the government lies nonstop about everything, nonstop. And so you have to be in the room to see it, or you have to know someone who is in the room, or you have to watch very closely to get the drift of this. But you know, all the people say, oh, it's nothing to do with NATO, blah, 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 blah. They don't know. How could they know? The New York Times has denied it for 20 years in this kind of pablum that, that the American people have been fed. So they have no data, no information, unless they're watching you guys. That's the, that's the basic point. They might be watching us. There's a clear indictment oh. of U.S. policy the, uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union. That our disparate treatment between Poland and Russia. Because we saw Russia as potentially a rival, not an enemy, just a rival for economic hegemony, if nothing exactly. else. Because the tremendous resources, the population, the size, and you know the things that they'd accomplished under very adverse circumstances is the Soviet Union. I was really struck by his comparison to the Treaty of Versailles, in which yeah. Germany, in which France and England just penalized the Germans oh, yeah. so much. Humiliated, yeah, and, perfect soil for developing a fascist what what jeffrey sachs has done in that in that talk right there relating it to what we did or didn't do for poland what we did or didn't do for uh for russia i mean that was provocation as far as i'm concerned mm. oh you treat you treat poland like this but you're going to treat us like that that's provocation so that was just yet more information more fuel for the fire has to ask us could we please look at 
our policies with the idea of what's good for the world. Well, like uh, like Deason was saying, um, and like others have saying have said, it's it's ruined our perception around the world. I mean, we are it's it's basically fear and loathing when it comes to the U.S. What what do we bring to anything? Security. That's that's what we say. We're going to come and and give you security assistance, and we're going to professionalize your security apparatus and then the, these militaries that have just been professionalized turn around and stage coups <laughs> like claire was saying the, the the idea of providing security through militarism that militarism has never brought security no or at best it has brought tension mm -hmm. and fear <clears throat> and at worst it has brought destruction and despair and and the deaths of millions of people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean and, and millions and terrorism. Huh? And and terrorism. Where do they think that comes from? Oh, for sure. <laughs> well, for the past three weeks, we've really harped on Russia, Ukraine, and the spillover into all <laughs> different areas and, and and putting it in context. And so I guess we needed to do this. Like I said earlier, I think something's bubbling up. I hope it doesn't boil over. So it's really just getting more and more dangerous. The <clears throat> webinar that uh, Peace and Justice had with Ray McGovern and Bruce Gagnon. Gagnon. Yeah. You know what we ought to do? We ought to go. We ought to look into that for next week's show. Uh, certainly excerpts from, from some of what they had to say for sure. Yeah. So uh, what what is your suggestion for a song? You know, it just goes back so long. Since we listened to Claire Daly and Mick Wallace, how about an Irish song? Like, There Were Roses. My song for you this evening It's not to make you sad Nor for adding to the sorrows Of our troubled northern land Lately I've been thinking and it just won't leave my mind I'll tell you of two friends one time who were both good friends of mine Isaac Scott from Baina, he lived just across the fields A great man for the music and the dancing and the reels MacDonald came from South Armagh to court young Agnes Fair And we'd often meet on the Ryan Road and laughter filled the air There were roses, roses, there were roses And the tears of the people ran together Now Isaac, he was Protestant and Sean was Catholic born But it never made a difference for the friendship, it was strong and Sometimes in the evening when we heard the sound of drums We said it won't divide us, we always will be one For the ground our fathers plowed in the soil it is the same 
And the places where we say our prayers have just got different names. We talked about the friends who died, we hope there'd be no more. It's little then we realize the tragedy in store.